We're in Acts chapter 26 this morning. If you've got your Bibles, I invite you to turn there with me. We are uh, we're bringing the book of Acts to an end uh, fairly rapidly, I think. And a couple more uh, sermons and we'll be done. But uh, let me just get you up to speed uh, about where we're at. So Acts chapter 24, uh, we saw Paul before uh, Felix. And if you, uh, as you read chapters 24, 25, 26, even into 27, you, you get the sense that there's, uh, this is like government malfeasance at its worst, right? Like they can't seem to get this right. The judicial system is breaking down some. So in chapter 24 is the, is, is Paul's trial before Felix. And uh, before they can finish all of that, Felix departs the scene. And, um, and now Felix and Festus were, uh, kind of these, um, think of them as governors and then think of, uh, Agrippa as kind of a, the mayor. So you can think of, uh, those positions somewhat that way. So before everything can finish out, Felix departs the scene and Festus shows up. And now he is going to try to get up to speed and figure everything out, only he doesn't have a clue what's going on. It doesn't understand the internal workings of Jewish politics and religion and all of that. And so Festus has a discussion then with King Agrippa and um, and invites Agrippa to be a part of hearing the case. And, and what Paul hopes is that, or I'm sorry, what uh, Festus hopes is that when Paul makes his case to Agrippa, Agrippa can then, in turn, share that information with Festus, and he'll be able to make a make the right decision and the right call. He'll he'll understand all of the issues after that has happened. And so we are picking up then with uh, with Paul, who is going to make a, a rather extended defense. Uh, of himself before Agrippa and Bernice. Now, Bernice is his sister. <clears throat> you can make of that what you will in that day and age, okay? It's probably that. Um, and uh, so uh, we're going to pick up in um, Acts chapter 26, beginning in verse 1. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand to begin his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jewish people all know the way that I have lived Ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem, they have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that I conform to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope and what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. 
Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the the Lord's people in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority of the commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are satisfied by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea and to the Gentiles. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. That is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day, so I stand here and I testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. That the Messiah would suffer, and as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I am not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice, because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, Short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. The king rose, and with him, the governor and Bernice and those sitting with them. And after they left the room, they began to say to one another, this man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Let's pray. Father, thanks for your word. And as we look into it this morning, I do pray that you would 
allow it to break open our hearts. Father, it would plant seeds that would produce a harvest all for your glory and for our good. We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen. So, what you've seen is this defense by Paul as he is before Agrippa and um, and Festus. As he's making and laying out this case. And what I what I want to zero in on is uh, as Paul lays this out. First, I would just say this: this is a very uh, packed passage. There is a lot here. He preached multiple sermons on it, and. Um, And so what I want to do is, as we talk about the sanity of the gospel, because what Paul is saying is, he's saying to Agrippa, look, Agrippa, the prophets in the Old Testament testified about this suffering servant and how he would come and how he would die and uh, and how he would be raised again and and how he would do all of this in power. And um, and so he, he appeals several times to the prophets. And in doing so, he's trying to, you know, pull Festus and, and Agrippa in and say, look, you know what the prophets have said. Now, logically, this man Jesus of Nazareth, who was, whose tomb was empty and who was raised, and again, there, there are other places, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul kind of lays out the logic of the argument where he says, look, Jesus was raised from the dead. The tomb was empty, and um, and he appeared to five uh, to over five hundred witnesses. And he came and he appeared to the apostles, to the disciples, and we ate fish and we broke bread with him. And all of these things happened. And Paul lays out and he says, if that happened, and it did, then I'm totally sane. And the gospel that I am presenting to you is completely sane. And um, and he says, verse 25, I'm not insane, most excellent Festus. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. And so Paul lays this case out. And we could go that route this morning. We could we could talk about the case that Paul lays out. And and we'll we'll do that in, in the future. But this morning, what I want to do if I'm going to focus in on what does this mean? If Paul is right and Paul's defense is right, what is, and, and how does the gospel go about transforming us into that sort of person? And so as we talk about the sanity of the gospel, we're going to do it under three points. First, we're going to talk about how the sanity of the gospel challenges the status quo. The second point is we're going to talk about how it captivates its humble followers. And third, we're going to talk about how it changes everything it touches. It challenges the status quo. It captivates its humble followers. And the third part is is that it changes everything it touches. So let's talk about its challenge to the status quo. You've got to remember the world into which... The gospel has come, all right? The world in which Paul is teaching and preaching. In that world in which he is bringing the the message of this Messiah, that world, every community had their own gods. Every community had their patron saint, if you will, that was worshipped by the people in that community. And And then they would have had a plethora of other gods that they were worshipping alongside those. And so they were really poly, this thing's driving me crazy again. 
They were really polytheists. And and that's the world that Paul comes into. A couple of commentators have made the point that that even in this Greco-Roman world, they looked over at the Jewish community, and what they saw was a Jewish community that had their own God. They had Yahweh. And so they were worshiping Yahweh. And one of the things that, that God had had really chastised Israel for was that they they hadn't been a blessing to the nations. They hadn't taken their God out to the world in the way that God had commanded them and challenged them to do. Instead, they they had kept Yahweh to themselves and they had rules and regulations that, that they allowed to overcome their witness to the world. And so that's the world in which this gospel is coming. And so Paul is now making these missionary journeys into the Greco-Roman world because the gospel that he is talking about, this God, Jesus, is a God who he says is for everyone. He's for Jew and he's for Gentile. And not only that, but Paul has said to them, he created the world and he governs the whole world. Now think about that. If you're living in Ephesus, let's say, and Paul shows up on the scene and he says, Jesus is God, and not only is he God, but he rules and reigns over everything, and your life is subsumed underneath that, and he's Lord over you, and he governs your life. And you're there, and you've been worshiping your little deity all along, and you've had your little thing, and now Paul comes along and says, this is the true and living God in the person of Jesus Christ who came and walked among us and lived and died. He has just messed up your entire world. And so we saw, in the case of Ephesus, how disruptive it was to absolutely everything, because this message that Paul brought was no longer, right? It was no longer comprised of their own little deity. This wasn't Christianity had their little deity and now the Rome, Greco-Roman world had theirs. The gospel was, no, this is for everyone. And this God that we're proclaiming rules and reigns over everyone. And He is the sovereign over you and you and you. And now the world... That world is being turned upside down by this message. Because you can't have your little deity and have Jesus rule and reign over all of that. You see? You either have to accept this one or reject this one. Because if you accept this one, you have to give up everything else. And so that's Paul. He comes along and he's saying that. And so it didn't just sound strange to them. It sounds incredibly, what? Arrogant. Because Paul's on the scene now and he's saying, look, I have the truth for you. Oh, okay. So all these gods we've been worshiping, this way we've been doing life all along, we'll just sweep that aside, Paul, and we'll just take your message as it comes. Okay, we, we believe it, right? No. Completely disrupts, it challenges the status quo. The gospel of Christ was also unique 
Because as Paul is preaching it, he's saying, listen, this gospel extends to every corner of the world. Every part of your life is governed by this gospel. Every part of who you are, every fiber of your being is changed by him. Marion read the passage, the old has gone, the new has come. We're going to talk about how the everything that the gospel touches is transformed. And so they're struggling, they're hearing this. And what what do they think? What they imagine is that Paul is saying, look, what they imagine is that the gospel is going to come and there's going to be this new theocracy and everyone is going to be under this umbrella and it's going to completely radicalize everything and everybody is going to bow the knee to that. And if you don't, then we're going to put our foot on your neck and we'll take you out. Um, they imagine that. They imagine that what these Christians want to do is establish this sort of theocratic rule and reign over everybody where they're being judged by this gospel and, and by this set of standards and anybody who doesn't toe the line is done away with. That's what they're imagining. And of course, there have been periods down through church history where that's been the way that the church tried and of course it failed. But you see, that isn't the Christian ethic. That isn't the way that God has called us to go out and be change agents in the world. He's told us that we're going to be salt and light. We're, we're somewhat passive and, and, and we preserve culture. Um, so one of the things that I did on this, uh, on, on this recent trip was we, uh, this past Saturday, we had what the Air Force terms wingman day which is just a terrible exercise in government bureaucracy, okay? So here's what we do. We we get together. Uh, now, if you're active duty, you've got 365 days to do this deal. Um, but basically what happens is it's an entire day devoted to training. It's an entire day devoted to suicide awareness. It's an, an entire day devoted to telling you about uh, how to prevent sexual assaults in the military. You all have heard the stories and all of that sort of thing. And it's an opportunity uh, for us to put the chaplain up there to say something about God or good things or something. I don't, I don't know exactly how I fit into the equation, but I did. And so what I did, this, what I did was I, I got up and, and I wanted to talk about um, the free exercise religion for our, for our folks. Because... <clears throat> Because we have this challenge in the pluralistic world that we live in. And the, and, the, and the challenge is how does the church engage the world in a way where we're not trying to establish this theocratic rule and reign? How do we influence the world? Because we live in a pluralistic world. And we just happen to live in an amazing country that has written into the First Amendment to our Constitution, is written in there that we have the free exercise of religion, and that government doesn't get involved in all of that stuff, all right? And so I got up and I told our folks, I said, I asked them, I said, every one of you, and so I'm looking at 1,500 airmen, every one of you took an oath. How many of you are, how many military members do we have? Okay, a bunch. When you took an oath, you promised to support and defend what? The Constitution. You didn't promise to support and defend the President. 
You didn't promise to support and defend people. You didn't promise to support and defend a territory, a country. You promised to support and defend an idea. And written into that idea, that constitution, is the idea of the free exercise. And, and chaplains exist to both provide religious services and provide for religious services. And the provide for is the hard part. That's the, that's the part you would have difficulty with me doing. And that is, if a Muslim comes to me and says, chaplain, I need a prayer rug, guess what I do? I get him a prayer rug. Why? Because in this country, we have the free exercise. And I love that. I love that free exercise. I want our church to be able to flourish. And I want anybody else who who has whatever, you name it, they can build whatever building they want to do and do whatever they want to do in it. And here's why. Because I have complete confidence, exactly the way the Apostle Paul did, that in the marketplace of ideas, the agora, remember the agora that Paul went into? That in the agora, I have the exact same freedom that everybody else has. I just know this. I'm preaching the truth. I'm teaching the truth. And so that is my confidence. My hope and confidence isn't in theocratic rule or reign. It's not in the government establishment of Christianity as the official religion of the United States. It's that the gospel wins. It's that the truth preached wins. And so we proclaim it freely. And Paul is proclaiming it freely because he knows The sanity of the gospel, the reason and rationale of the gospel changes the status quo. It disrupts it by the very nature of it. And it doesn't do it by saying might is right. That is not the strategy Jesus implemented. He implemented the strategy of love your neighbor and pray for those who persecute you. Completely different strategy. That's not the world's way. And so that was the challenge. That's the challenge of the the church, and it was the challenge of the early church. How do we influence this world that we live in? And they didn't influence them by planting their flag and going on crusades. They influenced them by loving their neighbors. They influenced them by a message that resonated with people around them. It's the ethic of love. It's the ethic that God showed us when he sent Jesus into the world for us. And so the sanity of the gospel completely disrupts the status quo and it changes everything. Here's the second part. Is it the sanity of the gospel captivates its humble followers? I wanted to use embolden. It emboldens its humble followers, but then I wouldn't have had three C's. So I went with captivates. But it's emboldened, right? The gospel, as Paul lays it out, the good news of what happened way back there, emboldened, it captivates us. And here's how it does that. The first part is it gives us courage. It gives us courage to fly into the jungles of Ecuador knowing that the tribe that's there might possibly kill us, a la Jim Elliot. It gives us the courage, like David Livingston, it gives us the courage to pack up our belongings 
in a, in a casket-style box and to move to lands foreign and to share the gospel with people deep in, in the jungle. It gives Paul the confidence to trust the Roman judicial system with his fate at trial, knowing that there is a distinct possibility that it won't go well for him. Why? Because we know that Jesus taught that unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it can't produce. In order to have and to be productive, we have to die to ourselves. And the gospel captivates us for that purpose of giving ourselves up, the way that Jesus gave himself up, and it emboldens us, right? It, it sends. Imagine Paul walking into the court of Felix and Festus and Agrippa. It, you can go out there. This, this is a, it's such an amazing scene that a number of painters have, have painted it. And there's Paul with chains before the royal court, the king making his defense, his case. Boldly. I love the, I love the section where Agrippa says, he finally gets it. Hold, hold on a second. Are you trying to convert me? And what does Paul say? You bet your bottom dollar I'm trying to convert you, and not just you, but everybody who's here. See, that's what the gospel does. Why? Because when, when the king says, I'm okay with you, it strips away your desire, your need to be okay in the eyes of everybody else around you. And it gives you this bold freedom to go and to do this courage to speak that way. The second thing is, it humbles everyone that it touches. And so I, I said it captivates its humble followers, and that's an important point. Because humility, our humility with the gospel, is what makes it attractive. And it humbles us because we do nothing to earn it, nothing to carry it with us. We do nothing. You, you cannot, you cannot do anything to earn it. And if you can't earn it, then it's a free gift. And if it's a free gift that you did nothing to earn, then you can't boast in it. And that's what Paul says in Ephesians 2 where he talks about this gospel of grace, and he says, where then is boasting? There's nothing to boast in, because you didn't do it. In fact, God had to send Jesus into the world to die for you. And without his death, you and I are lost. And so you're not smarter, you're not wiser, you're not more creative, you're not more powerful. You know, we have nothing to boast in. And see, that's what the gospel does. And look at what Paul does. He walks in. He stands before Festus and Agrippa. And right out of the gate to Agrippa, what does he say? 
He says, you, he says, you know, uh, you know, King, I'm right and you're wrong and I'm fixing to lay it down for you. No. He says, King Agrippa, I know how smart you are, how wise, how learned you are. I know how much you know about the world. And so would you listen to my argument? Because I think if you listen to my well-reasoned argument, you'll agree with me. He appeals to him. He appeals to his, his being made into the image of God. He appeals to his understanding of the world around him. He isn't simply flattering him. He's speaking to him in language he hopes that he will understand because of who he is as a person. And so all the way through this argument, Paul shows how gracious he is. He shows how humble he is. He could have just said, I'm right, you're wrong, we win, you lose, get over it. That's not what he does. Instead, he goes and, and even though we're, even though he's bold, he's not brash. Even though he's confident, he's not cocky. Instead, he takes the word, he opens it up, and he challenges them. You see, that sort of humility is attractive to the world. Especially when you're basically telling the world that they're worshiping idols. When you're telling somebody they're worshiping idols, you've got to do it in a way other than, hey, you're worshiping idols. That one usually doesn't work so well. And so you have to show the attractiveness of the gospel. And we do that how? By the way we live. We do that by the way that we live. You see, what is impossible for the world to see is that the lordship, this this absolute lordship that the gospel talks about and that we talk about and that the word talks about, that's what makes us not hostile, but filled with concern. It's, It's that overarching love that God has for the world that gives us our concern for people and sends us out into the world to do the good that we long to do, the the orphans we long to care for, the widows that we want to take care of, all of those parts and pieces. It's the gospel that does that. Does he rule and reign over everything? Yes. And that's why we go and do. That's why we're ready to express the concern of the gospel to the way in which we love the world and the people in the world. And that's our challenge. And quite frankly, it's one that I, I don't know that we're wrestling well enough with. How do we love the world around? People that aren't thinking like us, that aren't seeing the world like us. We're not at war with them. Let Jesus come on the white horse in the final day. Let Him make war in the end. He's called us to love them. Here's the last and final point, and that is that the gospel, the gospel changes everything. Paul talks directly about his own conversion in this passage. How what he shows is my eyes were opened and I understood that the gospel of Jesus Christ is connected to the Old Testament. That's essentially what he's saying. He's not saying, look, do away with the Old Testament. Now we've got this Jesus guy and it's all right. He's saying, no, he he was the fulfillment. 
But I didn't see it until he revealed it to me. And when he revealed it to me and I understood it, it completely changed the way that I lived. And how does he say that? He says, well, before I used to hunt Christians down and kill them. But now I don't. You see, he had this change in his life. And, and Marion read uh, the passage for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul talks about this change that occurs. The old has gone. The new has come. The way we begin to think about the world our ideas and conceptions about people and who God is. All of those things are transformed by the gospel. And that's how it changes everything that it touches. It, it teaches us and it shows to us, it is a demonstration for us, that what we thought was right side up is really, really upside down. You see, we, we think that power wins. Jesus shows us in the supper that sacrifice wins. He shows us that in His sacrifice and His love for us, He has transformed the world. That's why there's hardly a nation, there's hardly a people group that hasn't been touched by Christianity. You can't say that about other world religions. But you can say that about Christianity. It knows no boundaries. It knows no people. Because it's ethic. The ethic that Christ brought and built into and shows us in the supper is the ethic of service and love. He laid down His life for us. When we go, as He came, and we lay down our lives for those who are in the world, and what that means is we give up our rights. We, we divest ourselves of, of the notion that right might is right and we'll put our foot on their neck and, and we'll show them just who God is. We show them who God is by loving them as Christ loved us. That's the sanity of the gospel. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you this morning as we've come, as we've heard your word, as we've seen Paul lay out for us how the gospel changes everything. Father, we would just ask, continue that change in us until the day of completion in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Listen, this morning as we come to the supper, let me remind you, this supper is not my supper, it's not the... It's not the elders' supper. It's not the Presbyterian Church's supper. It's the supper of the Lord Jesus Christ. And everyone's invited. If you're a member of an evangelical church in good standing, the invitation is for you to come and eat. If you haven't yet made that public profession of faith, let me encourage you. Take the opportunity to let the supper pass you by this morning and use that as an opportunity to pray and to meditate upon the goodness of God. And to reflect upon the sacrifice that Christ has made for you. The Apostle Paul gives us a warning in Scripture as he tells us that we are to come and we are to eat the supper in a manner that is worthy. Meaning we are to come through the method of confession. And he says, anyone who eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Examine yourself. 
before you eat of the bread or drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. Take this opportunity now in our time of preparation uh, to come to the supper as Christ would have you come through repentance and faith. Let's stand as we sing the power of the cross. It's in your supplemental hymnal, number 31. Let's sing the first and the second stanza.